we must always remember that without the freedom of expression and without the freedom of information, we simply cannot know if the other rights even exist. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Art Possessed podcast, a series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia, and in this episode we speak to Turkish artist, activist and poet Ege Dundar. Ege has been working at Penn International campaigning for free expression for nearly seven years across various projects and positions, most recently as Youth Engagement Coordinator. His debut poetry book, All These Things Aren't Really Lost, is due out from Black Spring Press soon. Ege and I sat down to talk about lots of different things. We speak about his experience of forced exile, following the persecution of his father in Turkey, his debut poetry book, and also how solidarity acts as medicine against oppression. Hope you enjoy. Let my heart give life by Nedim Turfant. Let my heart be a volcano pouring streams of lava upon the cold face of pessimism. Let it melt the mountains of ice between our hearts or give shock effect as a cold shower to the mummified ghosts roaming over the country. Let your heart be a remedy for a chain reaction of happiness to those who fight let it be resistance. To the captive in interrogation, let it be patience. To those with a set of days left, let it fill their mouths with heaps of laughter. Let your heart be so mighty that it shelters mountains of hope. Let your heart be like the earth, bring fertility to the soil from the springs behind the mountain cuff. Let the benevolence of the crops be the silver key to life. Let your heart soothe the farmer, the peasant, the day laborer, the distressed. Let it massage the broken wings of birds with ointments. Let it grant refuge to the ants working collectively in solidarity. Let your heart fill with generosity, giving butterflies an extra day of life, even if in dreams. Let it be a lifeline like the womb. Let your heart be crystal clear, as clear as water sprung to the barren forever. Let it suckle milk from the sun's pure breast and feed the needy. Let your guts give life to the lifeless. Thank you so much, Ege. What a beautiful, beautiful poem. And thank you so right. much for being with us on the Art Persist podcast. It's an absolute Thanks pleasure. Thanks a lot for inviting me. It's, the pleasure is mine. It's so great to have you. Um, why did you choose to read that poem today? So um, I chose it because Nedim Turfant, who wrote it, is a dear friend of mine, and I've always taken inspiration from his words and from his struggle. Um, he was a journalist in the southeastern part of Turkey. He was also a poet, English reporter, and he got jailed on trumped-up charges mm -hmm. and spent uh, to a sentence of over eight years and nine months. Mm -hmm. And he was recently released just after spending 2,400 days behind bars, which wow. I can't imagine what it must have been like. But I, um, we, we campaigned for him at Penn International, towards other partners. There was a lot of noises all around the world raised on his behalf and in mm -hmm. Turkey. But um, he was the one consoling us. This is what really moved me about this poem. He was the one shaping us up 
outside the walls when we lost morale, when we struggled. He was writing yeah. this poem for all of us, saying, just shake this pessimism, you know, shake these mm -hmm. mummified ghosts over the country. And I, I find that so powerful. And it has certainly shaken me to have read it, to know about his case. So I hoped that uh, others would have the same effect. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's, it's true. It's such Thanks a, for asking me. <laughs> it's such a kind of, I don't know, humbling um, hmm. thing to have someone who's in such a bad situation also, you know, writing to other people and, and writing Truly. while behind bars. Ege, hmm. could you start by telling us a bit about your early life? Where did you grow up and what was life like? Sure. Um, I grew up in Ankara. I was born there in the capital of Turkey. And I was um, raised by a bookworm mother and mm. a writer dad. So I think uh, it was a good uh, introduction into uh, literature, um, mm -hmm. but also into the intelligentsia of Turkey, um, be it writers, academics. Um, dad was a renowned, still is a renowned journalist and uh, was making documentaries and films throughout his life. So mm -hmm. I was always learning from his work and mom also worked with productions on him, uh, documenting mm -hmm. some of the rich cultural tradition of Turkey, uh, different figures and events that marked our history. I learned through some of their documentaries. So this was really enriching for me and widened my view as to what the country's heritage was about. Um, yeah. And when I imagine life, it was so lucky actually a great life where i had i uh, was much loved um, mm -hmm. a single child my grandparents and parents alike and we had a beautiful home um, growing up in ankara i had a piano there learned to play the piano since i was five and i know so uh, how precious these chances are in life in yeah. fact um, and also I, I long for them now as the con uh, conditions have changed and life mm -hmm. can um, downsize or at times as well, not always upsize. Uh, so, yeah, yeah it, in many ways it was a perfect life in comparison to the one we are forced to live now. Um, you yeah. know, it's still uh, wonderful. We're, we're very lucky and, and grateful to everything we have. But just looking at childhood, it feels like it was normal, how yeah. life should be. Um, yeah. And now it's it's everything but nearly. Um, so that, that's interesting. Yeah. And you said you're, obviously you're, both your parents are... Uh, writers or you know bookworms as you described your mother do, do you remember any writers when you were young that really inspired you mm -hmm. yeah um, actually Turkey has a long tradition of rights defending writers um, mm. and these are such names as Nazım Hikmet more commonly known outside Turkey or Sabahattin Ali, Aziz Nesin, Yashar Kemal these were all um, writers who uh, were prosecuted at times for their work or mm -hmm. um, prosecuted for speaking out about the state of society and their struggles inspired me a lot in my yeah. early life. The fact that um, it was much more than putting words on paper for them. They cared about their communities, uh, the well-being of fellow citizens uh, of their society and mm. struggled for them despite all the odds, even at times when these societies or the current climate rejected them. So I always had a feeling reading into their tales and how they keep going was um, yeah. it was good preparation for the troubles to come actually <laughs> um, later on because as I aged I also got to know people like Edward Said and yeah. Audre Lorde, James Baldwin, you know, to Louis Giabo, mm -hmm. Hannah Arendt, to Bertrand Brecht and you start seeing even Mayakovsky you could say there's just this 
resounding act of rebellion, a rebellious mm -hmm. spirit um, that just takes, cherishes dissent and tries to progress society for higher human values. And I took much inspiration from them. Uh, I think without the shoulders of such giants, I wouldn't be standing nowhere today. Hmm. That's beautifully put. And when did you start writing yourself? Were you always writing mm. as a young kid? Yeah, I think it was always uh, something I am. Um, I envy uh, mm. because I think children, whatever they watch their parents doing, um, they kind of want to try to do it themselves. So yeah. that's something natural, I suppose. But at the same time, they sometimes meet parents who don't encourage their skills, right? Mm. And for my case, they really did try to bring me into literature, into the arts. And that was, um, we tried to write a common story as a family. Mm -hmm. It was a fable tale called Duar. Mm. And I was only 10 years old when my parents got the idea, I think it was a publishing house that contacted them with this idea of writers writing with their sons and daughters. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was just 10 pages or 15 pages, something, a story about Greek and Turkish children separated by a wall mm. um, with an evil guarding it. And they're trying to meet plot how to come across and eventually decide to water the olive tree with its mm. branches and the bricks uh, from either side. And this eventually tears the the wall apart and I think for a 10 11 year old it was very imaginative it really boosted my imagination and my anticipation for what else I could write about and how it could come to life and how it could be read out in places I think yeah that really brought me into literature and art yeah that is amazing I mean also to give you know to tell a young child that they you know they have the ability to write a book even at age 10 yeah. it's it's pretty amazing and obviously it so, is. yeah Gives yeah, you that and I don't even confidence. remember what it was fully like, but <laughs> it must have instilled it in me. You know, I remember yeah. coming up with silly ideas like uh, toy soldiers should gun down the wall. And my parents <laughs> were like, oh, no, no, maybe not. Maybe we'll come up with something else. You know? <laughs> so even that is, is a great space. You're right. Yeah. It's enhanced imagination. So everyone should do that if they are writers and have sons and daughters, I think. Uh, Absolutely. It could be amazing. Yeah. yeah. And again, you mentioned already a little bit about... Um, what's happened since your childhood, which is that you and both your parents are now living in exile outside of Turkey. Um, yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us maybe about a memory of the first time you felt or you felt you felt personally or your, you felt your parents being threatened by the Turkish government and that sense of a change in your circumstances and kind of foreboding of what was to come. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think of, uh, of course, there's the biggest one, which is uh, the assault on my father's life. Mm -hmm. um, and there is the, just before that, almost foretelling of that event was um, the Gezi Park protests in Turkey, where yeah. aside from any pressures on my family or any political pressures on any particular people, just by being there, it was the first time I felt a genuine threat by the Turkish government against mm. myself you know there was other threats always within society but there was the first time I was engaging in whole-scale protests and the first time I saw people drowning in gas while being water cannoned while mm. gas canisters are flying over their heads and mm. I don't remember the exact number but hundreds of people lost their eyes or limbs because yeah. of gas canisters being shot too close and I could feel them whizzing through my head I could not breathe the first time like anybody gets pepper spray i think they they realize it's uh it's you get choked up and yeah. you need help and people were rushing to help but yeah i think that was almost foretelling to what's to come 
to the mm. rest of society. There was three million people rising up in 2013. Ten years on, I would say half the country has now faced the wrath of the government, if not more. Mm. Um, but yeah, the big event for me really was this gunman approaching my father outside a courthouse where he was being convicted for charges of trampling up the government, um, charges of um, uh, spreading uh, secret state information. Mm. Um, and it was actually a true story he was covering of Turkish arms being sent to Syria illegally yeah. uh, and covertly by the Turkish intelligence service. And the attacks actually started when the president addressed him on live TV, uh, saying the person who made the story will pay a heavy price. I won't let him be. God. That was a very tense and chilling moment yeah. where we were like, okay, what should we expect now? Um, and in fact, it was the same words at the gunman's mouth um, when he was doing his defense for shooting at my father in court. He said that the president inspired him and <gasps> showed him who the traitor was. Oh my and uh, as a result, he ended up serving a few months in jail and was let go while my dad received a 27-year jail sentence as a journalist. Jesus. And my mom wasn't allowed to leave the country until yeah. she escaped, simply for being his wife. So I think this case shows the impunity in place in Turkey mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how there is no real protection. Uh, actually, there's a threat from the government. So yeah. um, this carries on sometimes in exile. But I think this moment just clearly reminded me that you are not safe and mm. you, anyone could just pull up a gun and shoot your parents, even outside the courthouse. Yeah. And I have to mention my mom's bravery in jumping towards the gun yes. in this circumstance because she was so uh, incredible, uh, had no fear and just jumped on the gunman when other people were jumping away or trying to cover my dad. So I think this is profound and it's yeah. what moms do like it as well, I suppose. It's uh, baffling. She's also a hero. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a fantastic photo of... I mean, it's fantastic in a dark way, but it's a very strong photo, at least, of um, your mom... Yeah with the gunman and just a kind of tribute to her absolute bravery in that moment but yeah, really. how was it for you because i think am i right in thinking that you were in london at the time so you actually weren't in turkey with your family yes i was really frightened in fact mm. as anyone would be i was watching a movie in my dorm room and i got a call and mom just quickly said we're okay don't worry which is you never want to hear that. Yeah. And I looked immediately to the news. Uh, she said, just check what happened. I don't have the time to explain. And then I looked online and I could see that a gunman approached him. A journalist got shot in the foot. And the odd thing was there was a footage of the event because dad was just walking out to give a press statement. Oh. So I had to watch my mom and dad get shot oh at God. from a dorm room outside. It was just so, I felt so helpless, you know, yeah. like I, I had to be there and I was wondering, okay, this is just the first miss. What if there is a bigger plot? What if where they're going now, there'd be another gunman? And I think ever since that day, I've never felt fully safe yeah. for them. Um, in Berlin, dad still lives with police protection. Mm. And... Um, yeah, if we go back to the country someday, there's the tradition of so many people that are killed or assaulted. So this makes me afraid and keeps me on edge. I think yeah. that was my experience, was being on edge ever I since can... it happened. And it must have been really um, a really lonely time, I imagine, for you, because that sense also that you, you just want to be with your family at that time and, and you can't because mm. you're, you're away from them. And mm. did, you, did you ever go back to Turkey after that moment? 
No, so it was. It's been nearly five years. I haven't gone back mm. um, because my mother's passport was confiscated when she wanted to leave the country, yeah. and she was trapped there for three years, without any legal grounds, without a single accusation placed against her, no court case, just out of the whim. So I feared the same might happen to me. Yeah, where I can't come out, and I'm. I don't want to take that risk. And to be honest, yeah, the loneliness is a big issue because it resonates to something larger than myself. Anybody I think who must be going through troubles uh, has something similar. But ultimately, it's important to note that there's total contrasts all the time mm. in this sort of scenario between life there and life here. And uh, <clears throat> of course, this connection from what a university student should be experiencing, and mm. then uh, this connection from your hobbies and what you might want to pursue, for example, piano training becomes an, an option when you're campaigning for your father in prison. Yeah. Or, um, and these are important to understand because then it gives you the value of support and solidarity. That's the only thing I think that's medicine. Mm. It makes it makes you okay somehow. Maybe not the only thing, but for me, being uprooted and ripped apart from my home country has, still has effects on me that I'm, I'm still unpacking. Of but course. solidarity not only enabled me to move on, but also gives me some meaning to to um to what I do creatively but mm. to also what others do in the world. I think um when you lose things you're just ever more tending to hold on to what's left um yeah. safer and yeah, just trying to find a way forward I suppose. Absolutely. And and in this moment were you were you writing a lot? Did writing help you kind of tackle all the many emotions you were feeling at the time? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning, at the time, I was pressuring myself a lot uh, to try and write. Um, so it's a double-edged sword when I noticed I took myself too seriously, as in I need mm. to tell this story the right way and the best way. I realized I'm stressing myself even more because I'm unsafe. I don't have that much money. I don't have that much capacity to live elsewhere. You know how the mm -hmm. laws of asylum are in this country. They're getting even worse. But I think to be able to write, you even need some securities in the yes. first place um, to be able to write properly and to tell your story, to reflect on what has happened to you. So in that formal sense, it was difficult to write um, mm -hmm. to in a career sense. But for me personally, it was heavily therapeutic it was again one of those medicines that helped yeah. me get forward because it was almost like my mind was out of reach of the country so it was also out of reach of memories mm. that I kind of blocked or unintentionally was unable to remember them but writing brought them forward brought them back it was like repairing these memories and yeah. getting to know myself again through the series of notebooks and voice notes I've kept from over the years so those were like little gems for me dotted across my past and mm. I had forgotten of course some of the bits of writing um, but recompiling them as well as writing new ones just taking notes like a sponge not expecting much out of myself like this is yeah. going to be published one day I think in that sense it was it just meant having hope for the future and remembering my past that it was beautiful and that all these things are not lost uh, mm. somehow they're still there to carry you forward and um, where governments might fail you, where money, jobs, friends, relationships might fail you, where you might be left behind from home, I think, you know, it can be a last resort writing yeah. or any kind of creative expression to to make meaning out of life. Absolutely. And it's it's so fantastic to see where you've come now, because we're going to talk about it in a second, but you're about to publish your very first poetry anthology. And 
it's it's great also to see that even those I'm sure those moments where you weren't even writing necessarily for a specific thing but just jotting down your ideas actually culminate Mm. in in the future as well when you're in a maybe not safe space but a slightly you know better space than you were back then Um, definitely yeah if any young writer is listening to this emerging writer you know they should Mm. always keep notes and it will turn into a book someday if Mm -hmm. they (laughs) just keep taking notes because i would have told this to myself back then i had no idea that it would ever turn into anything you know but um, just the fact of keeping on and writing on just does get it out someday and i think that's so important Hi, this is Hussam Fazula, co-founder of Bosla Arts. Did you know our latest issue, Beyond Resilience, is now out? Featuring seven artists from around the world going beyond the sea to resilience through art, activism, and action. As a listener of the Art Persists podcast, you can get 15% using the code TAPP, all in caps. Order now at boslaarts.com. Now, back to the podcast. And Ege, we're obviously thrilled to have you on the podcast, particularly because you were part of our latest uh, magazine issue called Beyond Resilience, and you did a fantastic submission to that. Um, And I was wondering, so the concept, as you know, but for those who are listening who may not know, uh, the the work is, the book is called Beyond Resilience, and it's about this concept of, of how we think about the term resilience and how often people much like your situation when you were in London trapped and your family were in that terrible situation, um, were forced to be resilient. And we're kind of looking at, you know, what it means to actually keep going, keep being an activist, keep taking action and solidarity. I just wanted to hear it from you, what you think, what you think resilience is and, and how you go beyond it. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to your wonderful magazine it was a absolute pleasure and an inspiration to be part of thank you for being part of it Hmm. yeah and i think it's very important that we have a platform to share these stories of Mm. resilience so i really resonated with the theme and to me resilience implies a sense of readiness and beyond resilience just counteracts that idea because we weren't ready for any of this to come Mm. for us we weren't equipped or had any special powers to withstand the volume of pressure that hit us so i think we just had to adapt and find ways to cope uh practical ways useful ways to survive so the beyond resilience kind of seemed to be pointing at those ways okay you're resilient we get it but what did what what do we do now? You know, yeah. where does it go? And I've noticed that for people, it means, you know, for people who are affected by these issues, who are being told that they're resilient, it often means for them uh, chasing after uh, some sort of cohesion adaptation in their new setting, um, mm. but also bringing innovation and and inclusion in their projects. I think this puts refugees in a unique situation also because they are coming from the outside looking in yeah and i've i've found that the principles that they have at work are often needing to innovate whatever practice that may be be it media or literature because they just their concept simply doesn't fit to a place back home or in their new location so they have to create that space i think for themselves so beyond resilience 
it sounded like, yeah, I'm resilient, but I still have to do all of this stuff to actually make a living. Mm. So Beyond Resilience was a great theme, I think, to highlight that, that stop saying people are resilient. They are just yeah. having, to, having to cope and just provide opportunities or practical things they can do rather than celebrate their resilience or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. no, I think that's so beautifully put. And I think you're a great example of, of people who have used their experience and gone beyond it and um you do so much in terms of solidarity mm. but also you know getting young writers involved which we're also going to come to in a second um but first i thought sure. maybe you could tell us a bit about your upcoming your upcoming book and maybe you could read us a poem from it oh sure okay um so the upcoming book is called all these things are not really lost mm. and it's a collection of about 60 poems um, that I've written since being a child. Um, poems that I think the earliest one I wrote when I was 15 or wow. something in there. So it's very, um, yeah, it's a very special experience for me. Uh, you can imagine blowing many birthday cakes for waiting for one day having a poetry book. Mm. And uh, I hope it's coming around soon. Um, it's hard to describe, I think, so many poems and such a varied experience into what it, what a book might be about. But I tried to write a little blurb about it and... Um, it sort of dives into the loss and longing that is ushered in by being away from home, mm. forced away from home, and and how this is contrasted by the many forms of beauty in life that are found all around. Um, and there is a, a fight for human rights, and I think an acknowledgement of that, of freedom yeah. of expression in the book. And maybe there's also a relating of my experience with a wider exodus of self-discovery Mm -hmm. I try and say, like, people also go through being estranged to themselves somehow, and I did too. And I think then your ideas about love, loneliness, or even resilience can change when this titanic darkness descends mm. and there's lights just shining through these minuscule cracks that you have to find and chase. And I think that's a profound story echoed throughout history. And yeah. I just, I feel like I'm just another voice added to, to, to how this happens. Um, mm. But yeah, it's really hard to describe. So I, I really do hope that it resonates and that people um, find some meaning in it. Uh, poetry is such a subjective thing, isn't it? Yeah, I'm so <clears throat> excited to read it though. When when is it coming out? Um, I'm hoping for April. We okay. are uh, we have decided the date in April with the publishers, um, nice. but it's currently being worked as typeset and the cover is being finalized. So exciting! Uh, hope for April. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Is there a poem you'd like to read us from it? Sure, of course. This one's called Worship Street. Mm. It was actually written on an actual street in London called Worship Street. Nice. Um, I was passing, but I think it's in Farringdon. Oh, mm -hmm. Anyway. Worship Street. On the old town square, I sit on the steps of a church beside a beggar half asleep against its gates shut, watching passers-by on the street. Worship Street, to be exact. I contemplate the solitude deeply, having suicidal cigarettes, filthy, seeing the rich on a senseless spree, spending everyone's chances. Youths drift by drunken minds, people pass by with pets and bikes, bags, tennis rackets and tark suits, all on a mission, rushing. The old-timers ambling, paying attention to their steps, dreaming of softer bedsheets and tighter borders. In the heart of hipster land, monstrous advertisements hang over our heads for deals better than dignity. 
ceaseless constructions, strange architectures rise over the city, the tombstones of titans towering over the crumbs of our figures. Burdened attention spans dwell on banknote threads, like fishes on a hook pulled by accountants' bookkeeping, by complexes cloaked in mirrors. Foucault's panoptical eye up a furnace watches over the cells of individuals, the prisoners of the self. There's a small bookshop on Worship Street, next to fast food carts selling fry-ups. There are people wearing their watches where their hearts should be, on their sleeves, passing by in a hurry, failing to notice things. People kissing each other under the rain, lovers throwing bouquets of flowers as they walk on the skeletal lonesome. Opportunists selling umbrellas, phone contracts, and pocket-sized politics. By nightfall, above and below, the celestial scenery and the street's misery are superimposed. I still hide from being seen, until someone spots me eventually, and with the same puzzled look stares back at me. And for a second we fathom how to be all alone and all together. There are people who I am, and whom are a part of me. After all, we are the people that suffered for us. So I choose to pull down the curtains on my complexes and mirrors. Me and the rough sleeper keep to our seats by the church on Worship Street. Me still under the spell, him on the vicinity of humanity. We don't speak or ask why and just wait on the sidelines for the hammer to fall. Our prayers are whispered and we are unsure as ever if we want someone to answer the call or if we want the answer at all. Thanks. Okay, that was so beautiful. Wow. No, I think it's so relevant, especially today, in that the feeling in London, especially of, of everything happening, not only with our government, but also the cost of mm. living is so high and this sense of, mm. yeah, it's a really beautiful poem. When did you write it? Um, it was in the times I was uh, claiming asylum here and feeling mm. trapped in a bit in London, but also trapped in the Western world, I suppose, a bit because uh, the conditions for society, for better or worse, are different. How yeah. warm and welcoming people are in Turkey is, is different. And I, mm. I felt here uh, just this huge rush um, behind ambition, which, mm. you know, keeps people very busy and, and not many can afford the life others live in the city. And I think... This yeah. new botched poster by the Home Office, uh, you know, the UK's modern slavery system. It, mm. it resonated a lot with what I was trying to say back there, because I do find my friends are tired and, and struggling with living crisis, a cost yeah. of living. And, you know, whether they're immigrants and their rights are difficult to keep track, bureaucracy is hard. So mm. I think at the time I was really feeling all of that. And the idea of Worship Street, a place where you hope, where you worship for something greater that could be not just a religion, but a country, or it could be an ideology. Um, yeah. But it's often people who seem to believe in them that wait by watching all this chaos, and they're not sure if they want an answer mm. or if they're looking for one. And I think, you know, I wish uh, I, you know, that people should get going uh, and do something against it. But I think having writing this poem at the time, I was very much, um, if not defeatist, taking in the difficulty of the state of society in a way I think mm. I feel sad for that sometimes of how people come to behave uh, yeah. towards each other and all of that so I think that was the that was the feeling there 
Yeah, no, it's really beautiful. But it's also really important what you say. I mean, at Bosler and also at Penn, um, which is my <laughs> other job at Penn International, there is this always sense of how to make people care, actually. Like, it's... Yeah. I think especially mm. at the moment, you know, there's so it's everything is so accessible. So how can you capture people's hearts and their emotions and make them want to take action? Mm. And absolutely. But also I think what's so great about what you do is you also support young writers and you're you know, from, from knowing you a bit, I know that so much of what you do is also about giving the chance, giving the voices to other people, um, especially mm. young writers. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could tell us a little bit about why you think it's so important to kind of enable young writers from all over the world to use their voice mm. to be heard. Mm, sure. Yeah, I mean, actually, your comments, thank you for them, uh, point mm. to why, because, you know, you say it's so important to emotionally connect, tell stories and to move mm. people. I think writers do that really well. And um, I've found that they're often um, the first town criers against crisis, if you will. Yeah. They, having tried to understand the tendencies of their countries, societies, um, kind of reading between the lines of what's said and what is felt. Yeah. I think it is, in a way, if they're a good writer, their job is to communicate these common emotions or mm. individualized emotions. And they're often the first to be targeted for it too. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we can just look at them and support them earlier on, I think their contributions to society are, are, are large. And I've just noticed, uh, because without, before my father's imprisonment, I hadn't properly heard of Penn and what they were involved in. So mm -hmm. I was a university student when I first heard. And fast forward to six, seven years on, I've seen Penn International's networks help countless people, uh, not just help, but support, expand, amplify um, and to success at times, success meaning granting people freedom, granting people refuge, granting mm. people um, financial or otherwise, um, you know, media support, you name it. And I think these things are so critical for people to be connected beyond borders. Um, mm. So those were the two elements there that, you know, the writers should be connected globally and that they should be supported earlier on while mm -hmm. they are able to report on facts and communicate them creatively. Because we must always remember that without the freedom of expression and without the freedom of information, we simply cannot know if the other rights even exist. The process we went through as a family was a microcosm, it felt, of how many more get silenced mm. and how there's a chilling effect when something happens to one person and the effects are not through just prosecution, but it could be through marginalization, mm -hmm. it could be towards leaving you lonely, through blackballing you from working, through censoring yeah. social media. So I think, yeah, um, young writers have a taste of this in many countries, especially in the global south where they're facing against authoritarian regimes, but it's not from the global, um, it's not far from the global north as well when you think of every country mm -hmm. who's backsliding in their rights uh, yeah. free expression. So I think it's important that we wake up to this and support each other early on as young writers and do what we do best, which is to sound off these trends, alarming trends at times about societies mm -hmm. and try to move people to change them for the better. Absolutely. And for those listeners who maybe don't know, I mean, Ege, you and I both met, I guess, a bit before, but through the network of Penn International, um, yes. which mm -hmm. is a kind of global network of centers around the world, promoting literature and advocating for freedom of expression. Ege, I've taken a lot of your time. Um, so I just wanted uh -huh. to end with a final question about solidarity, because we, mm -hmm. when, when we launched our magazine Beyond Resilience, the 
horrific earthquake in Turkey had just struck and you gave a very moving uh, speech at the launch of the magazine about the importance of solidarity today and whether that be for you know anyone around the world whether they're being silenced uh, by you know a regime for using their voice or mm-hmm. also you know victims of natural disasters such as the earthquake and I thought maybe you could mm. just tell us a little bit a little bit again about the importance of solidarity and what you think about it um yeah so the theme of the magazine was actually really resonating with the earthquakes i think the earthquakes happened 10 days or so before your event and we were all shaken mm. by it and we're still shaken by it but at the time uh, it's gave stark reminders of what lies beyond resilience. What are the experiences mm-hmm. people have in that uh, borderline um, impossible situations where people try to survive? Um, well, it, first of all, just to describe what the situation people faced was, it was really apocalyptic. I mentioned about it in my speech. There was no access to help, food, medicine, toilets for days. And mm-hmm. under heavy snow and blistering cold, survivors tried to dig loved ones out of the rubble with their bare hands. They fought against hypothermia, hunger, uh, loss of immense scale of houses and lives, you know, just utter catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And yet the government was just so despicably disorganized and yeah. they were late. They were guilty as charged for contracting cheap developers, selling off gathering points for development projects, tanking the economy of resources such as the earthquake emergency fund and censoring traditional and social media, which cost even Mm. more lives uh, in their trying for managing perceptions. So it seemed like solidarity is the only medicine in this story, just like my own story, uh, where that was the savior in a country as fervently divided as Turkey. It was astonishing seeing how quickly categorizations disappeared and a nationalist under the rubble was just the same as a social democrat or no one asked if you supported AKP or CHP as they pulled you from the hands of rubble. So enemy mentality quickly disbanded and I think this was profound in a way, Mm -hmm. othering a way to owning others as self. But it's also important to note that a week before the earthquakes and now almost a month after even the opposition is going back to arguing among themselves over yeah. who the candidate is against the Erdogan. And I think anger and resentment towards the failures of governance get sort of professionally redirected towards others to deflect blame, right? Yeah. Like this happened with the immigration bill here where refugees were scapegoated for the government's problems. Mm-hmm. And just like that crisis, this one in Turkey, it reminded us the common nature of all our problems and how we got to act in solidarity, putting ideologies aside, when our differences matter, they're worth struggling over, but not as urgently as the main pressing issues that can leave us so um, out of help, out of need, um, by our governments left alone. Mm. And we need to get together to deal with those first, is to set up solidarity networks so that we don't so that we see each other the way we do under a crisis, essentially. I think that's what was profound, that we're all fellow human beings, worthy of dignity, of being saved. And it shouldn't take an earthquake to really realize this, whether yeah. it's the cost of living or wealth inequality or climate change. We're facing these massive crises that governments are falling short at times, but we're not acting like it really until something bigger hits that reminds yeah. us, oh, we have to do something. So the message of those who've crossed beyond resilience, like the earthquake survivors, to those who have not yet was, I think, to get going, offer collective solutions, um, 
because you never know what kind of crisis will hit. And this is true for any citizen, as any artist. I think artists should also take on this role, mm -hmm. as many did in Turkey, to uh, use their stature to raise funds to organize civil society projects at a place when government loses the trust of the people, they come forward. So I think that's very important that, you know, just like the artist Bosla covers, Bosla Arts covers, artivism will be much more important than some claim it to be in these days. Yeah. Uh, Turkey showed that, yeah. We'd like to thank Ege for joining us for this week's episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review and share it online. Only with your help can these important stories be heard. Thank you for listening and see you next week.